Today on the RPG Talk Show, we're going to look at the 2024 D&D playtest packet for Bastions and Cantrips. We're going to look at the Kickstarter for A Vault of a Life Well Lived by Cubicle 7. We're going to talk all about pacing. This is a topic that I'm going to talk about often. I have talked about it before, but I, I want to dive into it again because I think it is a really valuable topic. So we're going to talk about pacing in our games, what that means, how we prep for it, how we improvise it while it's going on in the game, all sorts of things like that. And we're going to cover the first batch of October 2023 questions from the Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome features, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, Secret of Summervine Villa, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the City of Arches Sourcebook, a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, a whole bunch of tools to help you run your game, tons of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. But most of all, you help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. This past week, Wizards of the Coast released a new playtest, Unearth Arcana 2023. This is for playtest documents that they are throwing out there to get people's feedback on for the stuff that's going to feed into the 2024 D&D books, the new 5th edition D&D 4 revisions, whatever they're calling them. Uh, those new books and they dove out into some dmg stuff they've been focusing very heavily on player focused stuff which i think is very important i think it's more important by far even though i am a heavy gm focused guy i think it is much more important to make sure that your player focused stuff is really solid works really well because that stuff is really hard to change on the gm side we can change anything all day long we can do things all kinds of different ways so i think it is when it comes to making sure the game is solid and is going to have legs that will last for another 10 years or more which would be awesome i think the game needs to be really solid on the player side so especially when it's a crunchier game like fifth edition i think you definitely need to get that that part of it right so so I'm glad they have been focusing heavily on player stuff, and I hope they continue to focus on player stuff till the very end, till the till they're, till they're really ready to do it. And I, I'm I'm hoping it is really really solid when they do so. I, I'm 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 very eager for that. But they did want to dive out into some Dungeon Master's Guide stuff, and so they did with this uh, guide that includes a whole system of bastions. I've skimmed this i haven't read deeply into it i of course have opinions regardless of the amount of expertise that i have like everyone else but i would point out point you towards a video that my good friend teo sabadia alpha stream has done where he he dived deep into bastions he clearly has thought about this idea a lot he he you know talks all about it big hour-long video where he dives into bastions i would if you really want to dive into the mechanics of bastions understand how they work understand issues that are going on all that stuff please check out his video you can find a link in the show notes it is worth your time i did i did watch his video i thought it was very interesting i learned a lot and i think he's spot on with a lot of his his thoughts so uh, one so so to to get one part out of the way, let's talk about the cantrips. I'm going to jump to the bottom and talk about cantrips because I think they're great. I I looked at the cantrips that they did and I'm like, yeah, those all look good. All right, these cantrips cantrips are fine. A lot of them, chill touch was always a weird one because it was neither cold nor a touch. It is instead instead necrotic damage. Well, now at least it's a touch. It's still not chilling. It's like it should be like harm touch or rot rotting touch or something instead of chill because it doesn't do cold damage. But that's all right. I don't care. I mean, we just made fun of Chill Touch for 10 years. I'm, I'm happy to make fun of it for another 10 years. Acid Splash is cool because it's actually a splash. Blade Ward looks like a cool one. It's a reaction. So re, there's a couple of reaction cantrips in here. I and I guess this is the one when, and that's interesting. It sort of lets you maximize your action economy a little bit more. And you impose disadvantage on the creature's attack roll. That makes sense. So instead of you having to cast it as an action and then have it happen in the next turn, you can use it as a reaction. That's a pretty good, makes it a pretty good cantrip. Like that's a pretty solid, it's like mini shield, right? It's sort of a mini shield. So that, that I think is kind of cool. Is it, it has to, it's only on melee attacks. So it's not on ranged attacks at all. So that, that kind of, you know, limits it, which I think is good, but it's pretty powerful. Use, but you need to, you need to be a caster that can cast this as a cantrip. So, so that works. Um, I wonder if there'll be some dipping to get that for your like super protective warrior types. I don't know. Friends. I didn't really see what changed with friends. They get the charmed condition. Poison spray has a longer range, does more damage. That's pretty powerful. D12. 
Range attack range is 30 feet. Then it's a D12. That's a lot. But that's okay because then now we finally have something that competes with Toll the Dead. I heard some chatter about Shillelagh. I haven't really thought about it much. It looks fine. The one that got my mind was True Strike because I hear True Strike complaints all the time. People have been complaining about True Strike forever. This one looks pretty good that you make it as part of your attack. Guided by a flash of magical insight, you make one attack with a weapon using the spell's casting. The attack uses your spell casting ability for the attack and damage rolls. Instead of using strength of dex, if the attack deals damage, it can be radiant or normal damage type. And then it does some added damage when you're scaling up. So it scales up nicely. That seems better. I don't know if it's really over... I mean, I don't know if it's powerful enough. Would you use this instead of using any of your other cantrips? I don't know, but it's better than what the old true strike was. So, so I think it's good. So, you know, those all look fine to me. I looked at those. I was like, oh yeah, those are, those are, those are cool. And it's got little design notes, which I think are great. You can, you can learn about why, why it does, why it does what it does. So that's fine. No, no real issues there. But then let's talk about Bastions. I have thoughts. My first impression looking at it was, Man, I don't need another point system. So there's a whole thing in here about Bastion points, 20 BP, 70 BP, 250 BP, 350 BP, 7 BP, that you, you spend Bastion points to do things. And you can use Bastion, a special facility in Bastion generates Bastion points, generates Bastion points during a Bastion turn. Depending on facility, Bastion character has Bastion points are an abstraction reflection of the benefits characters accumulate when their Bastions are operating. Exactly how amassing and spending Bastion points leads to characters acquiring magic items up to the player in, in imagination. Perhaps the Bastion hireling spread word. So my problem is that abstraction combat. There's no understanding of what Bastion points are in the world, and we already have a point system for this kind of thing that is in the world called gold. So why don't we just? use gold like i don't i'm there's there's probably a, a, a subtlety here that i don't get about why you can't use gold to do this instead of using a whole nother you know kind of commerce a whole nother subsystem of 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 economy but why not just use gold you can you bastions can earn gold you can spend gold you can earn gold while adventuring to get your bastions to do things that you want them to do by spending gold on them if the whole point of bastions or one major point of bastions is giving you some more stuff to do with your gold why not use gold as their thing i don't know if there's some good reason why you need to have another economy another meta currency but just gold just use gold right Another, so that's one, that was one big thought. Another big thought, which didn't really occur to me until I was talking with some other friends of mine. And they brought up the point of this thing, and Teos brings this up. This is 20 pages long. So here's a, my hot, hot take. You're going to get a hot take. This is a great system or a good opportunity for a great system for a book like Xanathar's and Tasha's. I don't think you want to put this in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Because the Dungeon Master's Guide has to be, it, everything in the Dungeon Master's Guide has to be there to support a game that's been around for 10 years and is going to be around for 10 years. This is just like a big idea somebody had. Now, I know that, yeah, my, my wife brought up the fact that, well, no, this whole idea of having home bases and stuff like that has been part of the core of D&D since like the 70s. And she's absolutely right. But not like this, and not 20 pages of it. And the big question is, if you put 20 pages of Bastion's stuff into your dungeon master guide what are you not putting in the dungeon master's guide in, instead right that the, you only have so much of a page count in the dungeon master's guide they already increased the font size which means they even if that the book was the same size it would be 30 percent smaller in the amount of material that it's going to have so even if it's bigger it's not going to be that much bigger i don't think it's 30 percent bigger so what stuff are you not putting in there that you're replacing with this and to complain about my bugaboo, I have, we all have our things that we complain about. And this is the thing that I complain about, which is there are like 20 pages of puzzles in Tasha's and still there has not been anything about how to help run combat in the theater of the mind or using an abstract map, which according to my own polls, 40% of GMs use some kind of abstract map or theater of the mind for combat. Wizards of the Coast themselves use theater of the mind a lot. When I talked to a Wizards of the Coast developer a while ago, they said, yeah, almost all of us run Theater of the Mind almost all the time. And there's still really no, almost no guidance. There's like three paragraphs in the Dungeon Master's Guide about 
you know, how to abstract areas of effect, nothing about movement, nothing about crowd control, nothing about, you know, all these different things that they have and how you can handle that in, in theater of the mind. Oh my God. Like, you know, so, so putting an entire new sub, you know, that when you, what are you going to cut? What's not going to be in there? So if I were King for a day and I'm not, but you know, here I am. And for me, when I look at the 2024 refresh, if I were in charge, I would want to ensure that the 2024 refresh is a refresh, that we have 10 years of experience and 10 years of watching people run with this game in different directions and watch the stuff that came out. And there's been 10 years of a natural experiment to see what things work and what things don't and what parts we need to pick up on. Now is not the time to come up with entirely new things and drop it in your core books. Because what if it just turns out that this doesn't work? What if they do the play testing and some people give feedback and like well we're going to tweak some things and they put it in and no one uses it that's 20 pages of material in the dungeon master's guide that doesn't get used and trust me there is a ton of pages in the 2014 dungeon master's guide that doesn't get used because it was like a big idea at the time and they put it in there and it doesn't really work and i actually think the dungeon master's guide is pretty good I think the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide is pretty good. There's definitely areas for improvement. The idea that doesn't really help people learn how to play D&D or run D&D games. And that wasn't really its intent. There's all kinds of talk about the fact that they, a lot of people believe that this was going to be the last version of D&D. And that they, <laughs> I heard a rumor that one of the people working on it called it the Pink Slip Edition. Because they thought this is the last version of D&D before we're all fired. And they just make t-shirts. So, you know, that they that when they wrote the DMG, it was, it was really for existing Dungeon Masters, not for new Dungeon Masters. That was a, 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 the whole game was sort of that way but let's just focus so now they know now they know what they need that book to be they've had 10 years of experience knowing that that book needs to be they know what works they know what doesn't they know what pieces people need they know how the game is being played they know they don't need facing rules right facing rules are in the 2014 dmg you don't need facing rules in the new one i don't think anybody uses facing rules there's a lot of stuff that's in the dmg that and new stuff that can go in there that's not entirely new stuff but stuff that we've learned they know that they need a better way to spend gold they know they need better instructions to teach people how to run games and it sounds like they're grabbing onto that chris perkins is talking about that dropping in a 20 page subsystem is probably not what you want to do with a refresh of the existing core rules it is a fine thing to do in a book like Tasha's or Xanathar's, where you're throwing optional rules, you do some playtesting, you throw in the book, and if people use it, they use it. If they don't, they don't. But you didn't crud up the core book with something that may not be used. So that's really my big issue with this, is not what it does or how it works or what's working or what isn't, but that it's a really big section of the book that is brand new. It's never been done before. Not in here. I mean, it has been done before. We have books like Strongholds and Followers by MCDM. So there's there's areas where this has been experimented with. And maybe this is an area where you kind of let the, the other publishers, other fifth edition publishers grab onto it and run with it. Instead of saying, no, this is a core thing. This is a th These 20 pages are more important than 20 pages of anything else we could put in the Dungeon Master's Guide to help people run fifth edition games. I seriously doubt that's true. Maybe they can take something like this and shorten it up. And I'll give an example. So, so what was my, you know, Mike Shea's big idea. But we're going to talk about Mike Shea's big idea. So in my, in my Patreon book, Uncovered Secrets Volume 2, I created a one-page home basis thing. And this was that idea of characters have too much gold and nothing to spend it on. Wouldn't it be cool if they could spend that on a home base? Now, obviously, this isn't filled out at all. It doesn't tell you anything about these places. But the idea was, could you have some gold value? Could you tie it to a thing? And then let players and GMs fill in the details of this sort of stuff. And it's like, what does a dwelling cost, right? And it's everything from like a tavern and a pub, an apartment, an inn and a spa and a manor and a tower and a temple and a villa and a keep. And they have different prices and you spend that amount of money. And it means like 50,000 gold. You could probably get that seventh, eighth, ninth level. You could probably afford to have a keep, but seventh, eighth, and ninth level, you're pretty powerful, right? And you could have the tavern and a pub is 2,000. You could have that pretty early on. The idea that, you know, that doesn't cost, that doesn't cost that much. Then you have sort of the traditional upgrades. What are the things you want to buy for your place? And this is where they, you know, the, the nitpick like oh you want heating you're going to need 200 gold pieces you want an office that's 200 gold pieces so your kitchen spot they're all pretty standard stuff they get up to like laboratory stable cellar complex wine cellar museum smugglers tunnels things like that but those are monday and then i had these like fantastic 
upgrades, magical upgrades, animated paintings, glyphs of warding, elemental furnace, animated armor, unseen servants, guards and wards, magic kitchens, magical hot springs, crystal ball, scrying mirror, summon circle, heating vessel, teleportation circle, planar gateway, resurrection vault. One I want to add here is brine pool. I thought I thought a telep- like a telepathic brine pool would be cool for probably, you know, 100,000 or something like that. So, and the idea is like, you kind of know what those do. You and the, the GM and the players get to determine like how that stuff sort of works. But some of these you can go look and go, oh yeah, it makes, I know what a crystal ball does. Like I can look that up. It's one page. Now, the other thing is this focus completely on just gold and you buy it. There's no system of like what happens when you're not there or how do you handle downtime? There's no system for that because you and the, the GM can kind of figure that out as like what makes sense for the story, you know? And, and I probably could have a thing in here that says like how long it takes and you could come up with something that like it's, you know, it's 10 days per thousand gold pieces or something to, to do it, right? Would, would be, I don't know how that would work. Just make it up. But the idea is like, I think a simpler system should i think a simpler system can work better for this and actually the 2014 dmg has stuff like this in it already it's got play dwellings that you can buy and keeps and upkeep and retainers and all that i like that stuff and it's good as is so i i I, maybe i'm wrong and maybe other people you know really dig this thing and love it but i don't know about 20 pages in the dmg i think simplifying this would be better shorter and less of this, you know, bastion points. I don't need another freaking currency to track. The other thing, and Teos talks about a lot of this, there's some broken stuff in here, right? The one that he pointed out, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's pretty terrible. So I'm going to rant about that one too, because I thought it was pretty good. Is that your, your, God, they're so long, right? There's some demi-plane. So you create a demi-plane, right? And where is it? If you rest in the demi-plane, it's scry-proof, it's fabrication. When you issue the empower orders to this facility, magical runes appear in the demo planes, walls, floors, and ceiling for seven days. Until the runes disappear, you gain temporary hit points equal to five times your level after spending an entire long rest in the demi plane. And it starts at 17. Let's do some math. That's 85 temporary hit points, right? That you that you begin with. And granted, it's 17th level, and everybody's like, oh, 17th level. But here's the thing about temporary hit points. Somebody at Wizards of the Coast, I don't know who, but somebody at Wizards of the Coast is in love with temporary hit points and they're putting them everywhere. And they've been doing so since Tasha's. Tasha's started throwing temporary hit points everywhere. And here's the thing about temporary hit points. Every system that you put in, every whether it's a, a new subclass feature or a new spell or a new power or a new magic item, anytime you put something in that has temporary hit points, you are cannibalizing every other power that also offers temporary hit points because there can be only one. Whoever is offering the best number of temporary hit points is better than all of the other systems that offer temporary hit points. So if you are a barbarian who has a power that grants you temporary hit points when you rage, but you are with a twilight cleric who grants temporary hit points when they do this other thing and theirs out is more than yours, your whole power is useless. If you have this demi plane that offers you five times your level in temporary hit points, and that's the highest amount of temporary hit points I've seen any system give. Every other system you have in the game, every character power, every magic item, every spell, everything that offers you temporary hit points is certainly less than that. And all of those are now useless because they don't they don't stack. They can stack like, oh, sure, once you're done with these, then you can start getting them from that. But all of the other powers that grant temporary hit points don't work when you already have 85 freaking temporary hit points. That's bananas. So A, stop with the temporary hit point things. That's a limited feature. It's sort of like giving everybody the ability to get advantage all the time, where if you have enough simple systems to grant people advantage, that eats up every other way that everybody else gets advantage. If if you had a bard who could use bardic inspiration to grant advantage to all of the characters in the group, well, now the the, the hide action is useless, and any so are action points, and so are all, all the other systems that grant you advantage disappear if you have something else that gives you advantage that's better. Temporary hit points are the same way. Whatever the biggest system is, for temporary hit points that one is going to eat all of the other ones there is no other system that that doesn't do anything so you know stop with the temporary hit points now if you wanted to have something like that like i'm not going to tune it on the fly but the tune on the fly would be have it do double your temporary because i know that there's like a sanctuary that gives you temporary hit points equal to your level that's not bad because that's 17 temporary hit points at 17th level it's not that high 
This one maybe should be do two times, right? That's, that's because it's 17th level, 34 hit points, 34 attempts. It's still going to eat everything else because apparently people are in love with temporary hit points. But it's 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 better because it, it's not 70, 80 temporary hit points. Give me a break. Stuff like that. The, the one that Teos particularly pointed out to me because he knew I'd, I'd love is that there's a place that gives you the ability to generate spell components that are worth up to a thousand gold pieces which is exactly the amount that you need to get a hero's feast bowl freaking hero's feast man i hate hero's feast so much i only hate one tiny part but here's my declaration it's, it's kind of a false declaration if hero's feast doesn't have resistance to poison instead of immunity if it still has immunity to poison damage i don't know why we bothered doing a 2024 refresh like that might be enough where i'm like i don't know why i would buy the books because if they can't fix that one thing and it's really small and it's so clear how broken that is and it's ruined entire sessions for me. Like that one feature ruined entire sessions for me. It takes entire swaths of monsters and makes them basically useless. If they can't fix that, then why are we even bothering? So that's my, you know, the hero, Hero's Feast. And if they do fix Hero's Feast and then they have another way that you can spend a lot of money in order to spend a lot of money on spell components or not you can spend a lot of money on this so you don't have to spend money there and you have easier access to Hero's Feast thousand gold piece bowls if Hero's Feast isn't busted then that would be fine so we'll see my but my big thing again I haven't I didn't dive into every single piece of this you know so I don't know there's probably other areas where things definitely need tuning I'm hoping people provide feedback I'm hoping that people, you know, tell them what they like and what they don't like. And I could totally be wrong. I, this is in a conversation I had where we we're all talking about this. I was like, look, there could be something else we're not considering, which is we're just out of touch, right? Me and my friends and other designers that I've talked to, we're just out of touch. And it turns out this is fantastic and everybody loves it and everybody really wants this and everybody is going to use it. That'd be great. If that happens, I'm fine. If it turns out, no, we do. We, the feedback we got was good. We are going to spend 20 pages in the DMG on this and people are going to use it at their table. And it's really fun. And people do, then I'm totally wrong. And so in two years, let's look back and say, hey, was Mike Shea right about this or wrong? Because I'll tell you, I've been wrong before. I thought advantage was going to ruin the game. I, you know, I remember when they first started talking about advantage and I was like, are you, that's bananas. That's so much more powerful than the plus two bonus that we had in 3.5 and 4E. That's ridiculous. You're going to bust the game. The game's going to be, oh, this is the worst. It's going to increase critical hits and all oh, that. And I, I freaked out and I wrote stuff about it. Other people wrote stuff about it. It was math. There's all this stuff with mathematical equations and charts and tables and all this stuff about how it's going to ruin the game. And then here we are 10 years later and it's really great. And we all like advantage. And then a lot of us were like, oh, I used it at the table and it turned out it was really fun. So, so I was wrong about advantage. Totally wrong. I thought it was going to be game busting and it was going to make the game too OP. And there's some areas it's a little OP, but it certainly hasn't broken the game. And it certainly, I think is super fun. And now like every other system is putting advantage in place in lots of different places. So, so that's one where it's totally wrong. So maybe I'm totally wrong about this too. Maybe it turns out, no, these bastions are awesome. Maybe they tweak them a little bit and they fix some things. They put them in the DMG and people love it. And now there's this whole other cool system that people can use to have home bases on top of their characters and everything else. That sounds great. Honestly, though, I still would bet that being in a supplement would be better than trying to stick it in the DMG. That's, that's my, I would, I would pay special attention to that if I were on, if I were them. So that's my thoughts and rants about the 2024 D&D playtest for Bastions and Cantrips. The Vault of Life Well Lived by Cubicle 7. A Life Well Lived is a fifth edition product made by Cubicle 7. Cubicle 7 did the Uncharted Journeys. I just did a spotlight on Uncharted Journeys. I love that book very much. It's a really, really cool book. Very well done. I backed the Kickstarter for it. I got the book and, and really enjoyed it. And A Life Well Lived is done by the same group. And what I'm particularly interested in with Cubicle 7's approach is they could have just said, hey, we're going to do a monster manual, a player's handbook, and a Dungeon Master's Guide sort of books for our fifth edition take called C70-20. But instead, they clearly looked and said, what are some areas of this game that aren't totally fully fleshed out that we could focus on and make a really good deep product that covers it? And Uncharted Journeys is that example. And I, I, I referred to like Uncharted Journeys as a cure for overland travel for 5e. And I think it is a cure. Obviously, there are other there are other ways of handling overland travel that other people might enjoy. But I thought Overland Journeys was really, really good and a really fantastic book. So then when I found out that same group is doing a life well lived, 
And it's all about character development. It's all of the things about how you build your your characters up, the deep, the the the, the deep build of characters, how where they came from. You know, what life experiences do they have? How did that, how does that draw into them? What's their, you know, so more than just like a background, you have like a life path system, which I think Cubicle 7 might've included in other RPGs of theirs. I'm not sure. Downtime activities, camp, camping activities, patrons. And then what you do when you retire, how do you, how do you leave? How do you leave the whole, the whole world? And it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite sections of Xanathar's Guide, which is the This Is Your Life section of Xanathar's Guide. So Xanathar's Guide to Everything includes a pretty meaty section of different tables that you can roll on to determine where you came from. Who were your parents? What happened with your parents? Who were your siblings? What happened with them? Do you have any previous villains? Do you have previous lovers? Do you have friends or rivals or whatever? And you could build this rich backstory. And the cool bit was, and I hope they do this with a life well lived. One of my critiques is that there isn't a sample chapter to tell us exactly what this book looks like or show us what it actually looks like. I would love to see a table of contents. I would love to see some sample chapters from it. I think that that would be something that would really give me an idea because this sounds great. The question is, is it going to be using random tape? Is it using some kind of other thing? How does that, how is it letting you build it? Because I'll tell you, the random tables in the Xanathar's Guide for, for This Is Your Life were fantastic. And it let you build really fun and rich characters just by rolling some dice. And like my wife and I were talking about, we just loved, and I've done it before where it's like, you don't really want to sit and think about this whole big backstory. You can just roll these and then start to weave together this picture of where your character came from. And I think that's really awesome. What I would love to do, I would love to do this for something like Shadow Dark, where you do it for your zero level character who then gets hit in the head with a rock and dies in the first scene. It'd be very fun to spend like two hours building the super rich backstory and then just have them get killed. Or you could do this whole thing for an NPC that gets thrown off a cliff. Like that would be, that would be kind of fun. And I'm making that up. I don't know how fun that would be. That seems like a lot of time for, uh, for a joke. Yeah, somebody brings up Traveler. Travelers are really fun. If you've ever played the Traveler RPG, where you roll this incredible system of like how you got to be where you are, and you can literally die during character creation. I had a character who died during character creation. It's really, or retires or whatever. And then you got to start over again. So it's really fun. You know, really fun to see how this whole thing kind of works. And yeah, so I, I love the stuff that I've seen from Cubicle 7. They've made some really beautiful, outstanding products. I am very excited to see a life well, a, a life well lived. And I backed it myself. And I hope you will too, because it looks really, really cool. So you can find a link to the Kickstarter for a life well lived down in the show notes. And it looks like a really fun fun product and i'm just i'm eager to see what else they do because they've they've cubicle seven has done this great job of nailing these slices of this game and expanding on these slices and particularly with uncharted journeys which i just thought was fantastic i'm curious like what other ones do they have and i want to see what their c7 their, their take on the c7020 system is going to be like that what's their fifth edition take going to be like it's going to be hard because we have a lot now we have tales of the valiant we have level up advanced 5e we have 2014 D we have more D coming out so we already have like four systems in the next year we're going to see what's that fifth system and that there's a whole bunch of others too there's a whole bunch of other fifth edition systems so how opinionated do you make the system how divergent do you make it from other ones how close do you make it to other ones these are deep questions and lots of people are struggling with this tales of the valiant has a philosophy their philosophy is staked pretty close to what the the core 2014 D is like and a lot of people are like, well, why am I buying this if I have that? Now, they have a lot of other cool features. I think I'm definitely excited for Tales of the Valiant. Then you look at like Level Up Advanced 5e, who refined a lot. It's I love it. It's a fantastic take on, on 5th edition. And they did diverge. They, they got rid of paladins and monks and some other things and barbarians, I think. And they changed them into other kinds of classes and a slightly different flavor. They have other systems that they added in there, that kind of hero point system kind of things that they put in there. So they, they have like a different take on how it works and yet maintained compatibility with fifth edition overalls, particularly for monsters, which is why I like the monster vault so much and DMG stuff. They, they, the adventures guide, the, the, what is it called? The trials and treasure guide and the dungeon delvers guide for level of advanced 5e are both excellent products as well. Oh, it's fantastic. We got so many cool products that are coming out for fifth edition. I love it. So yeah, very, very excited for that. 
So, patrons of Sly Flourish get access, as I mentioned, to all kinds of cool things. I want to point out one specific thing that, that patrons of Sly Flourish get. This is an example of some of the exclusive adventures and things that they get. Uh, this one is called The Secret of Summervine Villa. This is specifically written for the City of Arches sourcebook. Uh, will almost certainly be, when I, when I get around to publishing this as an actual physical book, Secrets of Summervine Villa will be included in the City of Arches sourcebook because I like it so much. So the Secret of Summervine Villa uh, is, a, is an adventure toolkit. So instead of being a specific adventure that has a strong start and has like events that take place and has like a location and has a plot line that you follow, that Secret of Summervine Villa is intended to give you, the GM, the tools you need to build your own adventure around a specific location. So it's an experimental product, an experimental thing that builds lets you build a, a whole situation around a location in, in an area. It's pretty small. It's a five-page book with including titles, so four pages overall. Talks about what this is, what this means. So the Summervine Villa is this villa that's in the city of Arches. It's actually pretty old. It is currently being held by a councilwoman, Lady Elvenia Summervine, who seeks it over, but she's got secrets of her own that's going on there. And she secretly wants to break the, the, the political the current political arc of the city of arches. And so the whole idea is what adventure do you want to build around this place? And so we've got goals, right? Do you want to find the keys to Arcus that there is a secret key that exists somewhere in Summervine Villa. You need to go get this key so that you can find the gateway to Arcus. Maybe it's hidden somewhere and you could decide where that key is. It's a, it's a MacGuffin that moves around. You can decide where you want to place it. Close the gate to Chul, that there is a world called Chul that Lady Summervine has opened up and is releasing a demon from, a, a Baralgra from. And you need to go down there and stop her from doing it and close this gate. That's another one. Recover evidence that, you know, spies of the Golden Order have said, hey, we're pretty sure she's doing bad, evil stuff. We need you to break into her villa, go and find signs of her treachery and bring that out to us. So different kinds of goals that you can uh, accomplish that you as the GM can choose as your primary goal. You could even mix a couple of them. Like maybe you go in to, to recover evidence, but you actually find out she has opened up a gateway to Chul. And now you have a new quest of closing the gateway to Chul. It's all surrounds this one villa. So the whole idea is like when we talk about situation-based D&D, the idea is there's, a, there's this location, there are inhabitants of the location, there's a current situation, and there's a goal that you have. So very heist-based sort of thing. We have the major inhabitants. We have like each of them are listed here. Lady Elvenia Summervine, Lord Guston Summervine, Venna, the daughter. She's got some interesting stuff going on. You know, her, the main guard, some evil cult fanatics that are working with Summervine for their evil cult stuff. Because of course you got to have cultists. The butler, who's not really sure that he's on board with everything going on. Grim Watchers, who are mercenaries that have been hired. All kinds of different inhabitants of the place. So these are like groups and it talks about like, you know, these are the groups that you can kind of drop in and decide how they're going on. You have locations. So we have descriptions of all the locations that are available on the map. And we have a map with a small key. If you recognize this map, this is the villa map from the Lazy DM's Companion. Beautiful map. I thought it worked really well here. So we made, we use this map for this location with the idea that you can decide what's where, but, but use it. And for heist-based adventures, it works. So there's descriptions of every one of the locations, both an abbreviated two-word one and then a slightly longer one. You have, then what are the situations? What's going on here? And there's different ones. The summoning of Kravix that maybe they're in the middle of conducting a ritual at the location by opening up this place. That's the Baralgra and Elvinia's open up the portal and you need to go in there. Maybe there is that they're hosting a party and they've invited a bunch of affluent and influential acquaintances that are there. And some of the guests are supporters of the City of Arches. Other ones are, she's secretly trying to work. Maybe she's trying to even assassinate people there. Uh, meeting of the Faithful, that she's got a bunch of these people that she knows that are on her side that she's bringing to the place. So that gives you opportunities for how the characters get involved in this. Do they try to sneak in when there's a big party going on? Do they try to pretend to be members of the Faithful? Do they just go in there, kick in the door and start, start wiping out cultists? Whatever you want to do. And then what are the complications? So this whole thing is about those kind of high space adventures. You have a location, you have inhabitants to that location, you have a situation that's going on, you have a goal and you have complications all built into this one, you know, four page adventure or adventure scenario, adventure toolkit that you can use. I actually ran this myself. I ran uh, a party where they were gathering evidence against her and she was conducting a ritual down below or she was meeting with her faithful down below. And it was really fun. And I, you know, 
I'm going to speak well of my own product. I had the material that I needed from this toolkit to be able to let it go any direction they wanted to go. The players had all kinds of different places they wanted to go and things they wanted to do, different ways they wanted to get involved. And it gave them lots of opportunity. And I think it was a really fun adventure. So this is just one of many different things that you get by being a patron of Sly Flourish. So I hope you will consider signing up. The link to join the Patreon is in the show notes below. Pacing. Pacing our RPGs. Monty Cook had referred to pacing as being the most important skill that a GM can master. And it is getting pacing right is very much an advanced GMing skill. Knowing how to keep things moving at the right pace, knowing how to twist the beats. I have a chapter on it in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. I've written about it many times on Sly Flourish. I've done other videos on it. I think it is a topic always worth coming back to and thinking about and discussing. And when we are looking at products, when we're looking at adventures, when we're looking at our own notes or how we're operating, I think it's really worth talking about and thinking about pacing. That, you know, how does this affect pacing? What's their expectation for pacing? Is this, is the pacing built up front or is it something I now have the tools to improvise while I'm running my game. All of those questions are there. And and this came up for a couple of reasons. One is I had an interesting game on Wednesday night where I, f- I was thinking more about pacing and seeing what the pacing of that game was like and where it was high and where it slowed down and where it kind of evened out. Uh, and also was part of a discussion on my uh, Sly Flourish Patreon Hero Tier podcast called Readings and Reflections. Hero Tier subscribers to Patreon uh, get a weekly podcast called Readings and Reflections where I read the most recent Sly Flourish article and reflect upon it and dive deep into it. And I did so. And that brought this topic up as well. The article that I talked about was called How Many Rounds of Combat Are Ideal? You can see the article directly on Sly Flourish. You can also get it by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You can't get it now because it's not going out in the newsletter. But future ones you can get by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, which you should do in the show notes. And the whole thing about how many rounds of combat are ideal, the thing in my readings and reflections that I talked about was that it's actually, that's, that's endemic of another question, which is how do you, what's the right pacing for the game and how does that work? And the idea that there are an ideal number of rounds of combat and spoiler, there are not. But if there were, the reason why there would be is because of pacing. That you would think that, oh, that, that's the right number of rounds of combat to fulfill a enjoyable battle where it's not too easy and boring and it's not so hard that it's a slog. But the reality is that whether something's so easy that it's boring or whether it's too hard as a slog really doesn't come down to the number of rounds of combat. It comes down to other features. And that's what I kind of wanted to dive into. The same question exists when you talk about things like how many encounters should there be in an adventuring day? And there isn't a, there isn't an answer to that either, in my opinion. There, there are, and there are systems, and people have talked about how many, and usually they're talking about like attrition of resources as the important thing for something like how many encounters in an adventuring day. But that doesn't have anything to do with how fun the game is or what the pacing is. And that's why I think it's, when you think about pacing, it's more, to me, It's more important to give yourself as a GM the tools and the capabilities to work with the pacing of the game while you're running it than it is to try to map out the pacing of the game before you run it. So John Four over at Roleplaying Tips has a has a topic that he's talked about pretty much as long as I've been talking about like eight steps for Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. He's been talking about the concept of five room dungeons. This is something that's been picked up elsewhere. I saw recently that Dyson from Dyson Logos, who was here in our Twitch chat a little while ago, I don't know if he's still here, but he built dungeons uh, that are built around the five room dungeon idea. And the five room dungeon idea is essentially a model for pacing that when you look at what a five room dungeon has that the five room dungeon breaks things down into five different encounter types that are chained together and those are an entrance and guardian a puzzle role-playing challenge a trick or setbacks a climax and a reward and if you think about that it's like a high a lower pacing a dip then another big high and then another dip and it creates this you know sine wave kind of cycle and that's intention is to you know that that intention that that is intended to build a pacing for the game that you can prep for 
he and I talked about this. Actually, John Four and I have a series of videos that we did together where we talked about five room dungeons. And I was trying to dig into the idea of like, how do you improvise five room dungeons? Or how do you sort of keep the model in mind, but but bring it out while the characters are going different paths? Because an issue with the five room dungeon is it assumes that you go into room one, two, three, four, and five. You don't go from room one to room four, but then you get like your JQuay style dungeons, your JQuay style dungeons where they can go any direction they want. Then how do you do the pacing that way? So we had some thoughts about that. We had some videos. But so, so there's a lot of ideas about how to model the game to kind of have the pacing built in. That idea of having a set number of rounds in, in a battle, the idea of having so many battles per adventuring day, the idea of things like five room dungeons. You know, there's other other ways that people are are building pacing into the prep work to make for that fun game. But I'm a bigger believer in the idea that giving yourself the tools to improvise pacing is more important because you just don't know what things are going to be like. And sort of this, this is sort of a parallel to the way that encounter building works, where I've talked about the lazy encounter benchmark, which is this way of kind of determining if you're in the red uh, with how many monsters you throw at your characters, depending on the situation in the game. And it's a very loose system. It doesn't matter how many times I say this, that it's a very loose system that's really only intended to give you a rough gauge of whether an encounter might be inadvertently deadly. People still use it as a system and they still use it to do math and calculations and stuff like that, which you can do. You know, it's not that it's wrong, but they forget step one, which is pick the monsters that make sense for the situation first and then use the benchmark to see if you went overboard. It's not a it's not a currency system. It's not designed to be a system that where you build encounters from it. It's designed to be a benchmark that you use to test the encounter before you run it in the same way that there's so many other variables that affect how challenging an encounter is going to be like terrain, magic items, synergy between characters, experience of the players all different kinds of things. It's, it's like a, There's a whole bunch of them. We talk about this a lot in Forge of Foes, that there's a lot of different ways that an encounter can be challenging other than the challenge rating of the monsters, the number of monsters, the level of the characters, and the number of characters. And the same is true when you're talking about things like pacing, that the, there's there are many variables that are going to determine the pacing of your game that you won't know until you're running it. Like, how late is it? Or how's the timing of the rest of the adventure going? Are we carb crashing right now? Did one of the players have a bad day? Did they have an argument? Did they roll significantly poorly when they thought they might roll well? You don't know what's going to happen. That's going to change the feeling and the pacing of the game until you're in it. And then when you're in it, you want to have the tools to say, wow, everybody's kind of tired or this scene didn't play out like I expected it to. And everyone's kind of bummed. I need to be able to add some excitement here. And, you know, you need to have those tools on hand, I think, to be able to change those things. Wow, I thought this battle was going to be really fun, but now it's just a slog. Or I thought this battle was going to be really challenging and they just ate through everything way too easily. What are the tools that you have to help you maintain a pace with this whole thing I think is is really important when I was talking about the game I had on Wednesday the interesting thing is I had a really strong start a really cool Dwarven Forge really fun why don't I show it because I can show off I'm allowed to show off it was cool you know so I had this really fun Dwarven Forge layout they the characters when they saw it, they go I find it very concerning that this whole thing surrounds this giant bottomless pit but the bottomless pit looked really cool. And I'll give you a hint. When you put a bottomless pit in the center of your battle environment, two out of three times, it's the monsters that are going to go in there. Maybe four out of five times, it's the monsters that are going to go in there. So I definitely, my, my wife with her barbarian, her bear, bar, bear folk barbarian, Bruno, loves grabbing bad guys and throwing them into pits and managed to do so a couple of times. I believe there was a necromancer. She wasn't a necromancer. What was she? She was like a evil, eh, was she a necromancer? I don't think so. She was like an evil spellcaster, evil sorceress, like a necrotic sorceress, ghoul, Darakul. And I believe it, well, I can't remember. I think it was Bruno who grabbed her and threw her into the pit. You can see where she went up right next to the pit in order to get an angle on the other character, on the other, on the other characters. And Bruno went and grabbed her and she rolled a two on her athletics check. And he rolled a, or Bruno rolled like a 23. And I was like, it's like picking up a bag full of sticks. Like a, it's like, you know, it's like you're, you know, it's like a small garbage bag full of compost. And he's like grabbed it and threw it right in. Really fun. 
So that was high energy, right? A lot of fun. People really enjoyed it. They, they love, there she is right on the edge of the pit. So people really had the, that fun in that battle. It took about an hour, maybe a little less than an hour for that fight, but it was a really fun, cool Baldur's Gate 3 style Z access, you know, cool terrain, fun miniature fight. And then after that, they had some exploration that was mostly like a conversation with an NPC that didn't really give them a lot of information they didn't already know, no real big choices for them to make, no real decisions for them to make. And that was pretty low energy. And I could tell, like, the energy here is low. And then they moved to the next scene where they had a situation. They knew that they, they had a thing they needed to do. They knew the location where they needed to do it. They knew who the inhabitants were and they had to make choices about where they were going to do it. And that act of making those choices is actually not super high energy. It's definitely more engaging. They definitely have a lot of choices that they can make. But there's also a lot of like back and forth and what if we tried this and what if we tried that? And that can get a little tiring too. So, you know, I realized that like afterwards I was thinking about the pacing of the game and I was like, it was really high and then it was kind of low and then it was sort of medium. And, you know, so that, that question of like, do you, can you look at the scenes that you're preparing and say, are the potential, is the potential here for a high scene? Like the high scene is sort of the doing, like planning, learning about is pretty low. The planning is kind of medium. And then the doing part is pretty high, but the doing part often doesn't have a lot of big choices. Sometimes it does, but most of the time it's pretty tactical choices. Hey, we're going to go, we're going to do this thing. We're just getting engaged. And that's your high pace. You're fighting a battle. Combat in D&D is definitely like usually a pretty high energy thing, but then you can also have beats in there too, where it's high energy at first and then it gets low energy and then so on. So that, that pacing can change uh, a fair bit too. But generally like you can think of your combat scenes are pretty high energy uh, as long as you keep that energy high. And that's why there's so many dials in battles that I have that I offer up to keep your energy high as long as you want it. And then move on when that energy is starting to dive down, like the drop the hit points to monsters to zero and get them out of the picture fast so that you can move on with the rest of your game. But it's important to think about those games. And I'll tell you like lowest pace, the lowest pace scenes, and these are hard not to do are exposition. Scenes where the characters are just learning things. They meet an NPC and the NPC just vomits forth a whole big dialogue about major stuff. And the most action that the characters are taking is maybe one of the players is writing some notes and they're not making any choices. They're not doing a lot. That's pretty low energy. So those exposition scenes, we want to be really careful with those because they're definitely going to be low paced. Now it's good to do one of those after you have like a big battle. Because it's okay to have some low pace where they're like, hey, I'm going to go grab my dinner real quick while we're here in this exposition. Like you have, you have breaks, right? And then, you know, then the kind of exploration, then when they have high tension, that can be pretty high pace. So, you know, it's important to look at these different scene types and, and see where it's going to go. And then there's another major piece to this that I, that I was thinking about, which is when most of the time you may not have to do anything at all. That when you're running your game and you're at the game, you may not have to do anything. That the pacing takes care of itself. What happens, happens. People are happy. There's almost a natural system. I remember Robin, Robin Laws, who talked about Robin's Laws. He, he wrote Hamlet's Hit Points, which talk about upward and downward beats. And in that book, he says, like, by the time you've internalized this, you've, you've maybe already have internalized these ideas of upward and downward beats. And you don't even think about them. You just, they're just done. But certainly, like, once you start thinking about them, once you start using them, eventually they fall back. You don't need to use them. The game just follows that way. That Because you as a GM are experienced, you kind of know how to keep the pacing up, and you just do it anyway. And you know when to put your upward and downward beats because that you just can feel it. You just feel how that works. And I think that that is really good, which means that probably much of the time you don't need to do anything. The game just goes the way the game goes. But then on occasion, you want to steer it. Um, there are occasions where the mechanics of the game or the situation of the game or something in the game has steered the, the, the pacing down the wrong path. And that's when you want to hang onto the wheel and give it a little tug and, and, and move the direction back towards the pacing that matches. It's like ending a battle early, throwing a battle in if things are getting too quiet, making sure you're putting some important decisions in front of the characters if they don't have it you know, tapping into the character's knowledge of something instead of just giving exposition, you know, finding, finding these ways, those are important. 
but and there are there are a few areas like this in our role-playing games where we can just sort of have our hands off the wheel and let the game go forward as it's going and only occasionally you have to grab it and kind of steer it towards in and another example is like realism versus kind of realism versus fun which isn't a di- it's a false dichotomy that realism is often fun but sometimes realism leads down a path that isn't fun and then we want to lean towards fun so when you're thinking about like what makes sense this is my most common one of my most common pieces of advice for running a role-playing game is what makes sense given the story and the fiction in the game. How many monsters you choose is not based on how much uh, resources you want to take away from the characters. It is about what makes sense in the game. What, what, what kind of monsters would they face here? What number of monsters would they face here? Would they be hostile or not? Like that, you, you kind of say what makes sense given the situation. And that could be for bigger situations. That could be for NPC interactions. That could be for combat. It could be any aspect of the game. How does the trap work? What makes sense? And then based on what makes sense, the players determine, you run with that and you see where it goes. And then only if you see like, wow, that's what makes sense, but boy, it sucks. And no one's having fun with this. That's when you say, okay, I'm going to put my hand in and we're going to steer it towards areas that are more fun rather than what makes sense. Like I've heard DMs say like, well, that's what would have happened. And you're like, yeah, but nobody enjoyed it. You didn't enjoy it. The players didn't enjoy it. Nobody liked it. Why? Why? You know, we control the world, really, right? We could have made that less arduous than it was. So that's something to consider as well. That, that generally speaking, when it comes to pacing, most of the time you can have your hands off, but occasionally you need to go in and be able to steer it. And it's worth knowing what tools you have available in order to help steer it. So I hope that was kind of a useful conversation. The topic of pacing is going to be, I'm going to talk about it forever. I don't think there's ever an end solution. I don't think we ever just nail it and everything is perfect. I think this is always something that we can improve on and something I like to, to talk about from time to time. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a new thread for the month for the Q&A. You can ask any RPG-related question there. Some of them, I, I answer every question every Friday on the site itself. Some of those questions come to the show here. I talk about them here, or I will even use them as a catalyst for an article or video. I have done that recently with a couple. And let's talk about our first batch of questions from October 2023. CEH says, Before, besides foreshadowing, do you have any advice for preparing a dungeon that is very easy to enter, but the true adventure is the PCs trying to escape? I'm calling this a Venus flytrap or Roach Motel dungeon. You could also call it the Hotel California. For a pop culture reference, think the pyramid under the ice in the Alien vs. Predator. I unfortunately did not see I don't know if it's unfortunate or fortunate. I didn't hear it's very good. I didn't see it though. I ran, I just ran a one-shot aliens RPG convention game and realized during my prep that it's pretty easy for the PCs to get into the adventure location. But once they reach the center of the lab station, everything is designed to go bonkers and they have to fight several different enemies in order to survive and escape. So a couple, couple things that I think are pretty interesting about this. One, besides foreshadowing, the reality is foreshadowing. But it, instead of foreshadowing, the, the characters could know this because of how experienced they are. Especially if you have like space Marines, if they're veteran space Marines, they know when they're going into a situation that's going to be disadvantageous to them if things go wrong. Soldiers know this. They know like, oh, don't go into there. You know, don't, you know, that great scene from Inglorious Bastards. Like you had a meeting in a basement. Like, why would you have a meeting in a basement? Right. And he just goes on and on and on about why would you have this meeting in a basement? You know, and it's because it's like a terrible, terrible. And of course, we know what happens in Glorious Bastards. It turns out being in a basement, you know, is a really poor choice. So soldiers would know this. Space Marines would know this. And adventurers would know this. Like if you have just normal, regular adventures, they would still recognize like when they're going into a place and like, man, getting out of here is going to be hard. You know, I hope there's something. And I hope we don't get cut off. You know, I hope that we're not, you know, we don't get outflanked and now we got people all over there. They're going to recognize this. So maybe they know that. Maybe you even tell them that when they notice that when they're walking through this particular area. So that, that I think is the way that I would do this. But the other thing I would do is this is a good example of like, are you building a location with a specific design and feeling and approach. We were just talking about pacing, right? And this is that example of pacing that up front it's easy and later it's hard. Is that because that's the feeling you want from the location? Or is that just like the location and the situation is is almost certainly going to go that way? And the difference is, are you pushing it that way or is it going to turn out that way? Are two different things. And I would think that there are times where if the characters are aware of the fact that getting out of the place is going to be hard, they might come up with a really creative way to get out. Are you going to limit that? 
Are you going to cut that back? And it's funny because like if you think about when you're talking about Alien versus Predator and I've seen Aliens, who hasn't seen Aliens is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen Aliens, you should go see Aliens. In Aliens, they have this whole scene where they're going into the complex. They think they found the tracker beacons for the colonists. They go in there and then they find things out like, oh, that's right under. Isn't that right under the heating vent for the reactor? If they shoot that, this whole place could go up, right? So they put a limitation in place. Oh, you're not going to be able to use your you know, heavy weapons. You're going to have to use small arms, right? And then they, you know, they get other situations. Oh, we lost our shuttle, but luckily we can remote control the other shuttle, but we can't do it from here. We have to go all the way out to that other place. So Bishop has to go through this tiny little tunnel in order to get to the satellite dish so that he can manually override the ship and fly it down. And you think about like, there was a lot of circumstances in that movie where they just had exactly what they needed to be able to survive and nothing else. And it was still going to be really hard. An example is what if they did get on the drop ship, flew up to the, the nose, the nose, that was, that wasn't the Nostromo. I forget what the name of their warship was. Got up to their warship and then nuked it from orbit. That'd have been like a 40 minute movie, right? The Suleco. Wow. Good, good call. So they didn't make it because an, a, a big dumb alien got on the ship and killed the crew of the killed the, the pilot of the other ship. Well, then imagine if they said, hey, turns, oh, do, don't we have another dropship? Yeah. Can we remote pilot it? Well, then the movie's over, right? I guess we're going to sit here and starve to death because, you know, at best we'll starve to death. At worst, we'll be eaten by aliens and turned into aliens ourselves because, you know, incubators for aliens. Because, no, you can't remote pilot a ship. Yeah, we can't. The satellite won't reach that far. The lag is too much. And we'll just crash the ship. There's no good way to remote control the ship. Sorry. Like, no, it turns out, oh, you can remote control the ship. But you just barely do it and you have to go out to this other place. So there's all these things that kind of, these contrivances that make the story work. But in a movie, that's fine. In your game, it's not. Because when you're forcing the issue in the game, you're kind of taking ideas the characters might come up with and saying, sorry, that won't work because of X, Y, or Z. Now, if the situation just lends itself to that and that's the way it ends up, that's cool. But the player, you want to give players the agency to be able to figure that stuff out. And they often don't like to follow the pacing of the game. They like to crack the pacing of the game and find out, oh no, we have a total easy way to get out. I think that's really the key to whether or not you're kind of making a thing go a certain way. Because in a situation-based RPG environment, the players might come up with really creative ways that break that feeling. And you don't want to take that away from them necessarily. Or if you do, you don't want to remove their agency. Because then you're like, well, I guess we have to do it that way. A good example is like the chase. I love to pick on chase scenes because I think chase scenes, planned chase scenes generally suck. And they suck because, well, can't I just dimension door and grab the guy? Oh no, your dimension door doesn't work. Can I just run and double move? I have a really fast double. You can, but you'll get exhaustion. Oh God, right? Like, why are you just, you're just making us go through this motion and all of my cool ability. Can I shoot him in the longbow? No. I mean, it's 600 feet. I guess, you know, it didn't just, he's diving and weaving too much. You can't do it. Lame, right? So don't take agency away from players and from characters who might short circuit the thing that you thought was going to go a certain way. Uh, the pacing worked out, but the players played a role in that pacing. They were smart and uh, kept the threats at a reasonable level. If my players turned out to be foolish, a quick TPK was possible. Sure. And that makes sense, right? If the situation is just really hard, but they work out, that's exactly what you want. The main thing is you don't want to be taking away ideas or capabilities from the players because that kind of sucks. Really good question. That's why I put it here in the list. Jonathan R says, I'm about to run my first hex crawl and I wonder how much of the map you show to your players up front. I see all kinds of different answers and can't quite grok the most satisfying way. I would expose what the characters know. So I did this for my, I've been running hex crawls for the first time. Well, not the first time I ran hex crawls when I did, when I did Tomb of Annihilation was the first time I actually did a hex crawl. And then we kind of joined it into a point crawl later because like, I think hex crawling kind of gets, make it boring after a while. So here's an example of the hex map that I'm using for the gloaming, my shadow dark campaign. You can see my other videos and, and podcasts where I talk about my prep for my shadow dark gloaming campaign. And you can see that I generally show them what they know. So in this case, like the characters started at the tower, but they knew where Wardenwood was because it's a key settlement. So I showed them where that was. They also knew where the road was. So I, I kind of highlighted the road because they knew that there was a road that went from Wardenwood to the tower because that's how they got there. And then as they learned about other places, I would reveal those other places. So I think you can do it very much like a dungeon map. The only difference is you can highlight locations that the characters learn about. So they learned about a place called Bittermold Keep. 
they learned where Bitamol Keep is. So I can unhighlight that particular map. Now they might learn other locations. Like they might learn there's two other keeps that I think they're gonna know about. And I can I can I can unhide those locations. They don't necessarily know what's between them. And then you could kind of show a hex at a time, but they know where it is roughly. And they know that they're on their path to go there. So I think that that, that way has worked pretty well. Now that works really great for online games, which I think accounts for about half of games these days in person. It's a little harder and you could just, for example, print out the map without a key and put it on the table and just not tell people what those locations are till they get there. And there's a little bit of metagaming that would go on. There's a little bit of like, oh, I know there's a thing there. Maybe we want to explore that. And maybe that's fine. So I think you could go with any of those approaches. I don't know that there's a perfect approach. And I think approaches can change depending on what kind of tools you have and stuff like that. If you have a way to show a map and only show them certain pieces at a time, that would work. You could also get a big sheet of like one inch hex paper and draw the stuff in as they go. So you have the master map and you can use that map to draw them or maybe one of the players draws it and you explain it to them and then they're keeping their own map of the locations that they have. So that could be a fun way to do it too. So I don't think there's an ideal way, but this way has worked well for me in, in, in the games that I've been running for my, for my shadow dark and that, that you, you reveal the locations that the players know about or have been to, because it would, it, it, what, what makes sense that the characters would know. And then what makes sense that they wouldn't know until they stumble upon it. I think, I think that those are the big, th those are the big questions. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in RPGs. If you enjoyed this show, the best way to find all of the stuff that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. You get a free Adventure Generator PDF for signing up, and you get a weekly RPG-related article sent to your inbox every week. It's a really great newsletter. You can also support me directly on Patreon. You saw all the stuff this time that patrons get, the Q&A, the, the, the dedicated Discord server, readings and reflections, a new weekly podcast, all different kinds of stuff you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. And you can pick up any of my books and hopefully soon Forge of Foes, I'm hoping in the next couple of weeks on the Sly Flourish bookstore. All of the links of the, for those are in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.